Book Three, Chapter Fifteen of Clara Vaughan, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Clara Vaughan, Volume Two by R. D. Blackmore. Book Three, Chapter Fifteen. Isola happened that day to leave me before the usual time, being afraid that her father, who was not in his sweetest mood, would be angry with her. She was grieved, of course, at the new dissension, and thought me—her ideas were of loose texture—somewhat to blame, somehow. Nevertheless, she soon forgave me the crime I had not committed. That day I could paint no more, but sat me down to meditate. Suddenly a loud ring and a louder knock echoed through the house. Quickly Mrs. Shelfer's little feet came pattering up the stairs, and her grey eyes actually seemed to come in first at the door. On the crown of her head her black cap hung like the top of a chaise doubled back. "'Oh, my good friend, look here! I was never so frightened in all my life!' She held, as far from her as she could reach, a closed envelope addressed Miss Clara Vaughan. I tore it open and read, Mr. Vaughan is dying. Come instantly. Sent by Mrs. Fletcher. Telegraph, my good soul, cried Mrs. Shelfer. Electric Telegraph Company. All screams the wires red hot, and you must sign the message, he says. And is there any answer? And they give him eighteen pence. Oh, dear, I shall never get over it. Never had such a turn since my brother John went, and they tucked him up so beautiful. And I said to the clerk at Barbican, out of my way, if you please. Let me sign the form and leave me alone for a minute. There is no answer. Should I go or not? Bitterly as I disliked him, could I let him die among hirelings and strangers, I, his brother's daughter? A year ago I would have done so and thought it the judgment of God. Now I remembered my dear mother's death, and doubted about going only because I knew not how he would take it. My hesitation was very brief. A cab was ordered, Judice entrusted to Mrs. Shelfer's care, a short note left for Isola, a few things put together anyhow, and I was ready to start. Even in this hurry a selfish terror smote me, and I cautioned Mrs. Shelfer strictly to conceal both name and destination. She had only to say that some relative was suddenly taken ill, somewhere down in the country, the country being to her mind a desert marked with milestones, my description did not seem unreasonably vague. As I stood in the passage waiting for the cab, the poor dog, who had been quite flurried and scented indefinite evil, commenced, prolonged, and would not conclude a howl of passing sadness. "'Oh, my good friend!' cried Mrs. Shelfer. "'Let me stop the cab. Oh, waste of money to go. The good gentleman, whoever he is, is as dead as a crab-shell now.' There was a terrier with a split ear next door but one when my poor brother John was ill. His name was Jack, I think. No, Tom. Bless me, no. What am I thinking of? Bob. Charlie knows, I dare say. Well, send me his name by telegraph. Here's the cab, Mrs. Shelfer. Heavy thumps of weary, wambling feet. Grating of wheels. A needless whoa. And we opened the door. Judice bolts first into the cab, and, sitting upright with his tongue out and a sprightly pant, occupies the whole. 
it takes the united strength, address, and authority of cabman, landlady, and myself to get him out again. Then he coils his tail to his stomach, droops his eyes and ears, and receiving two hot tears and a kiss, is sidled and deluded into the narrow passage. The last thing I hear is a howl that winds far round the corner and beyond the square. In an hour and a half from the delivery of the message, I was in a second-class carriage, and we shrieked away from Paddington. The hurry and rush overcame me for a while. Soon the April evening was spread with shadowy grey, and we were rushing past the wooded waves of Pangbourne, and casting silver rings of steam on the many-fingered spruce before I could collect and feel my thoughts again. As we glided through plantations, and between the winding hills, with the partridge beginning his twilight call, the pheasants come out of the coppice to feed, and the late rook plying his dusky wings, at length the dust and city turmoil lagged round the corner miles away, and we sparkled in the dewy freshness of the silent moon. Though all alone in the carriage, I vainly tried for prudence's sake to creep into the cloak of sleep. Every vein and every pore was full of gushing, thrilling, electric life. The country! The country! The heavenly country's glory! How had I breathed and groped in a city grave so long? For every thought that dribbled there and guttered in my brain, a hundred thousand now flow through me, not of brain but soul. Thoughts I cannot call them, for there is no volition. Neither have they sequence, impress, or seen image, only a broad stream gliding, whence and whither I know not. How can I describe to others what I cannot tell myself? Gloucester, Gloucester, change here for Cheltenham, etc., broke my dreaming suddenly. It was eleven at night. I had come unwrapped. The heavenly country and nature's tide forgot to keep me warm. Out I came upon the platform, and dreamily began to seek my carpet-bag, for I had no heavy luggage. The moon was struggling with the gaslights, as nature in me fought with modern life. "'Floy, miss? Floy?' the lonely porter asked. "'Yes, please,' said I. "'Where for, miss?' "'Vaughan St. Mary.' At this part of my life I dropped the grand Vaughan Park. It seemed too fine for me, and I was well content to be of Conrad's class in the world. Oh, there is a carriage waiting at every train, if you please, miss. And with tenfold politeness, the porter showed me across the square to one of the family hearses, which my father and I so detested. It so happened that the driver and footman were taking some light refreshment at the bar of a neighbouring edifice, while the horses champed their bits and whinnied. The men came out against their will, and stared at me in the broad moonshine. I was very simply, plainly, and cheaply dressed in deep mourning still for my darling mother. But no servant of even slight experience could take me, I think, for anything but a lady, little as it matters. The men were half drunk, very surly at being disturbed, and inclined to form a low estimate of my dress and carpet-bag. "'You mean to say you be Miss Vaughan, young woman?' stuttered the reeling coachman, with his hands beneath his flaps and a short pipe in his mouth. "'Now I can tell you plainly, there's no mistake about me, mind.' I can't no way credit it. It don't seem likely, do it, Bob? Likely, Jacob? Yes, like enough to a fool, but no how creditable to the like of us. Think I don't know now. Perhaps the young woman will answer a few questions, Jacob. Ah, let you alone, let you alone, Bob. Especially for young women. 
porter, a cab at once, if you please, or a fly, I think you call it here. Oh, my London impudence! To be sure, miss, the best in Gloucester directly, and miss, confidentially, if I was in your shoes, I'd walk them chaps about their business to-morrow. How they have been carrying on here, to be sure, ever since the six o'clock train come in. Why, in the time of old Squire Vaughan, thank you. The fly, if you please. In two minutes I was off for my father's home, with a mighty rattle of glass and many jerking noises. About three miles from Gloucester we were passed by Jacob and Robert, who were sitting side by side and driving furiously. Convinced at last by the porter of my genuine Vaughanship, they had set off full speed to secure first audience. At length we passed the lodge, where the gates creaked as of yore, and dear old Whitehead trembled at my voice, and so along the great avenue where I had studied the manners and ways of every tree, and where Tulip, Nestor among deer, came to stare at us with his grey face silver in the moonlight. Poor old friend, he knew me as well as Giudice did, but I could not stop to talk to him. Soon as the bell was rung, the broad bolt of the great lock, which I was once so proud to draw, flew back with suspicious promptitude. Albeit he had changed the cloth, too ochorously described by Sally, for a suit of gentle grey, and had drawn out his face to a most unjovial length, and assumed an attitude of very profound respect, there he was, quite unmistakable to observant eyes, the bacchanalian Bob. "'And please, miss,' after he had fussed a while, "'what train did you please to come by? I understand that the carriage has been waiting there all day. Indeed, I saw it come back from the pantry window myself, and they said in the yard the last train was in before they come away.' "'I came by the train that ought to be there at half-past ten o'clock.' "'Well, to be sure, that must be the very train as Samuel and Humphrey said they waited for. But they never has much judgment, them two men, and to let you come in a common fly mist. I saw my father's carriage at the station, and two low-looking servants, quite tipsy. Their names, however, were not Samuel and Humphrey, but Jacob and Robert. Strange servants now came thronging round, with an obsequiousness so long unknown that it quite disgusted me. No familiar face among them, none whom I could bring myself to ask how my guardian was, but from their civility to me I concluded that his time was short. "'Will you step into the small drawing-room, if you be so kind, miss? There is a good fire there, miss, and the lady waiting for you.' "'Thank you. Take my things to my own little room, if you please. That is, if you know which room was called mine.' "'Tilly knows, miss. I'll run and fetch Tilly,' cried the officious Bob. If Matilda Jenkins is still here, let her answer my bell, as long as I remain. And therewith I was shown into the room where the lady was expecting me. She sat with her back to the door, and I could only see that she was richly attired in full evening dress. There was a powerful smell of vinegar in the room, and two pastilles were burning. As I walked round the table she rose with some reluctance, and I confronted Mrs. Daldy. End of chapter 15